Hey, Chris. What's up? I added more sound effects. All right. You're going to drip those out during the, the podcast? You know it. Uh, What's up? Oh, not too much. Just catching up from, I think, you know, anybody that was working on something that had a uh, Black Friday sale last week is you know, catching up on work the week afterwards. So that's how it feels this week. And to just being on Thanksgiving break. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Any traveling or whatever that you were doing is just kind of got a reset afterwards and did uh, the black Friday thing and went really well. So anybody that bought the black Friday go rail sale, I really, really appreciate it. Helps me, uh, you know, make screencasts every week for you guys. And that uh, makes a huge, huge difference for me. So huge thanks to anybody that bought that. I really, really appreciate it. And anybody that pays, you know, regularly, monthly. You know, it's kind of amazing that the community can support things like that so that I can do this for a living. I couldn't have dreamed of that like five years ago. So what about us people that pay yearly? Yeah, well, anybody that subscribes to Go Rails, huge shout out to you guys. Yeah, I subscribed after you sent me that video earlier when I was asking you a question. I went to watch it and it was like, view the preview. And I was like, oh. Oh, yeah, I forgot that that was, I don't even know what. It's funny because you asked me about what Rails UJS. Yeah. uh, I was like, yeah, I I know I covered it at some point, but. (laughs) <laughs> I yeah, I remember watching before. the video because I remember that you did like Rails.ajax, like just in JavaScript, and it handled like authentic- authenticity token and all that. And I was like, I really want that in this project I'm working on. So yeah, yeah, that Rails UJS stuff is really great. Just having it um, automatically grab the CSRF token and submit it along with everything. You don't have to worry about that at all, which is very handy. Yeah, it pairs really well with stimulus. So, like, I just attach uh, the URL I want to hit as like a data attribute on the controller, and then I just pull it in and do Rails Ajax and hit that endpoint. Yeah, because I, uh, I mean, the two things that I used to be about jQuery all the time were um, event listeners and their Ajax thing. So. With the two of those, you pretty much can recreate the majority of stuff that you're probably using in jQuery. So that's makes it nice and easy. Yeah. The other thing is um, you can also do like the remote true stuff like on a form and let it submit. And then in stimulus, dis- just attached to like the Rails UJS callbacks. So like form success. And oh, that's really right. nice too because that's even less code you have to write. What was it? There's one weird one in there in the new UJS code that if you want to cancel a form submit, you have to do like listen to the forms Ajax before send event and then return false or something um, instead of just like or prevent default on that event. And instead of listening to the form submit, that weirdly doesn't actually. Um, do it it doesn't cancel it um 
Whereas I think before it did. So that was one of those gotchas that I remember. And then I always forget it and I Google it. And then I found my own issue that was posted on the Rails uh, issues list. And I was like, oh yeah, of course. How does that feel? It's weird. And you feel bad because you're like, I've asked this question like five times already. And I keep having to come back to my own question. (laughs) I've answered this question before. (laughs) Yeah, it's so funny. That's how how that stuff works, you know. But it's good. You know, you're going to reference that, but everybody else will too. So anytime you can post content like that uh, is useful, like all of Stack Overflow. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, So another gotcha I had with like UJS is that I'm actually like loading it into a stimulus controller. So like I import rails from rails, UJS and then mm-hmm. say like rails.start. But what I didn't think about is that our application still had jQuery UJS in. Oh yeah. So it was, it was submitting forms twice and I couldn't for the life of me figure out what it was. <laughs> I was like, disabling listeners and all this stuff. And then I just commented out that rails.start. And I was like, Oh man, what a waste yeah. of my, what a waste of my time. I'm an idiot. Well, so then are you using the jQuery UJS now or, um, you know, did you migrate everything over to rails UJS? It's pretty massive to migrate everything over to rails UJS. Um, but what I did was on that page, there are no other jQuery like events. So I just disabled it on that page, mm. huh. so I could I could what, slide in there with that ES six. I gotcha. What uh, would you have to do with the other stuff um, to migrate everything from jQuery UJS to Rails UJS? I don't really remember. I think you have to go through and find like all the listeners in our JavaScript. Uh, yeah, I guess if you were removing jQuery, but if you just removed jQuery UJS and not jQuery. I wonder how much that would require to uh, do a migration. Hmm. I haven't thought about that. Yeah, it should be pretty interchangeable because I think it's mostly those data attributes that it listens to, like data confirm and data remote is true and all those. So you might be able to just drop jQuery UJS and then replace it with Rails UGS as long as you kept jQuery in there and you could keep using that, I believe. I'll just drop ES6 and jQuery all the things. And go back to CoffeeScript. Yeah, dude. <laughs> my, uh, one of my friends who listens to this, we were talking last week and he was like, you know, people are probably going to like start calling in soon or not calling in or like going to start writing in soon and being like, you say like too much. And I was like, dang. So anytime I say like today, I have this button. (laughs) We'll have to re edit the podcast and just bleep them all out. (laughs) It's funny. Only only if I use like as a placeholder. I gotcha. It's really funny because if you, are recording a podcast or something you don't realize you're doing it and then to stop and think when you're trying to talk it ends up being really hard and then you just it's very very hard to stop those like ticks that you have um you know it's just really tougher than it seems and someone can say hey you should stop saying like and you're like 
uh, that's a great point, but like, it's hard. <laughs> yeah. The other, I have lots of like ticks like that and I'm really bad about it. Like when I speak, I, I am a lot when I speak, uh, in front of people at conferences. <laughs> so I'm just going to talk a lot slower. I think that helps. I think that helps a lot. Just talking slower. And then people can play it at 2x speed while we talk like this. <laughs> yes. So, Jeremy, if you're listening. <laughs> cool. Uh, so, last week we ended the episode and we said we would talk about code quality, design patterns, best practices. Something oh, right, yeah. Something in the backlog for a little while. To yeah, talk it has about. been. It's been. Um, oh, I added this card to our Trello board on October eighth, so it's been almost two months. Here we are. Hey, you know this is an interesting topic because you know a lot of these things, and and you'll see these like, you know, posts about like the beginner wants to do it. Uh, wants to build complex things. The intermediate person, um, you know, can build complex things. And then the expert wants to build simple things or whatever. And that's kind of where I feel like these best practices and design patterns fit in a lot of times where the beginner and intermediate people are like searching to find out how to do it the best way. And then if you're like, if you've been building things for long enough you're like well number one there is never any best way so like you should probably ignore this stuff and uh, design patterns are something that you've noticed emerge from solving a bunch of problems it's not necessarily something you should choose before you try to solve the problem you should try to solve the problem and see which one it aligns best with and where your code will go in the future. You shouldn't just try and fit it into a design pattern as soon as possible. And I think that was kind of the point that I wanted to make um, when I wrote that card down in our Trello board to talk about. What are your thoughts? So I consider myself in between that, like past the intermediate, I said, like I consider myself past the intermediate phase more like <laughs> at least in Ruby. And there's no doubt that when I was starting, it's like, I just want to get it to work. But like still when I was a beginner, I was like, okay, now I want to do it right. But like the one thing there, there is no right or wrong, I guess. Right. I say, and that's what I'm learning now is, or I guess the thing I'm learning now is I don't feel like there's a, a definable thing as good code and bad code. Um, I don't know about that. Uh, I do think that some code is good. Some code is bad in the sense that some code handles errors and future changes very well. And I think that is good code and bad code was ones that either constantly break. They may do the main thing it's supposed to do well, but if you want to make any changes to it, it can be very hard and you might have to rewrite it. I don't, I don't think that's good code. Um, so I I guess it's kind of a stylistic thing or something more ephemeral to describe it like that. 
Um, I guess that's what I'm trying to say is like, there are, there are things that I think are good code and bad code. It's hard to, I don't know how to measure that though. Yeah. It's not, it's not easy to measure that. I don't know that it may ever be possible, but, um, yeah, I, I definitely think it exists in some sense. Because like, if, if I were to define what it means to me, like good code means easy to change and pro or easy to change and simple are the two things I would say. Uh, as much as I care about like style from like an OCD standpoint, like that doesn't make code good or bad to me. Yeah. Um, no, I, I think you can, you can solve the problem a million different ways and each will have their own merits and flaws as well. So it, it's always going to come down to so much context, you know, like anytime someone does a refactoring or something, um, it just matters so much of what are the intentions of this and how is it going to be used and what will it be used for in the future? How will it change? You know, how will the problem change in the future as you get more users, more whatever, that is all the stuff that's going to affect your code. And so a lot of times if you don't know that context. Now you can just like write good enough code. Um, but it might work you into a corner where you have to rewrite it all. If you don't know what you're going to do in the future or what might need to change in the future. And that's okay. It's just one of those things that the better code that you can write better code in the sense that it's better making it easier to change if you know a decent idea of what things you might want to add or remove or handle in the future. Um, I think that's really important. So that goes kind of where I was uh, going to go next. So like when I, when I was a beginner and like, I want to start doing things like right or the, the preferred way. And I'm air quoting here. I would, I would search for that, but that was very, it was very tough as a beginner because when I say like there's no way to like measure good or bad code for me, like it meant that I was just on this like carousel of like writing code and like trying to make it the right way, but it was never the right way. Um, but I learned yeah. things like how to, I learned how to write code better. But then the problem was like when I became like more of a mid-level engineer, I was like, okay, let's learn all the design patterns, right? And let's like, let's really learn what good code is. And then it's exactly like you said, the problem was I didn't have enough context and I was jumping into things and trying to shoehorn these problems into design patterns that didn't need to be there yet. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's very, very common from what I've seen. Um, from junior developers and just developers in general, like there's a lot of people even with senior titles that will do a lot of that. And it, it also goes to show you just in the industry, like depends on the compo the company, they're happy to throw around senior titles or whatever. And so that doesn't, it's not a great way to measure yourself either um, based on your skill level as well. But, but yeah, I think, well, my experience was interesting because I mostly taught myself programming um, for a long time. And then I went to uh, 
university for a computer science degree. And that experience was interesting because for the most part, I didn't learn anything. There was a few things where we did say uh, data structures and algorithms, stuff that I wouldn't have needed to teach myself building websites. Like you don't really fiddle with B trees and stuff that often until you're doing something complicated. So a lot of that wasn't like practical. The practical stuff was, you know, me sitting down and building like an IRC client and then being like, well, you know, it's interesting. Like these messages come across and they say where, what channel they're in or if they're a direct message or whatever. And same with HTTP. It says it's a get request or a delete request. What if I could just call a method with that name dynamically? And so I ended up like trying to figure out what metaprogramming was and teaching myself that at one point, which is really cool. It was really confusing because I was like, I don't even know what you call this. I don't know how to, I figured out how to do it in Python, but I didn't know what to look up. And then when I got into Ruby and I read the metaprogramming Ruby book, they were like, yeah, this is metaprogramming. And I was like, oh my God, like I kind of discovered that on my own. This is so cool. And I had a really great time at that point you know, embracing Ruby because it's one of those things like you will build stuff and you will end up stumbling into a design pattern. And then when you do that, you really feel like you know the design pattern really well, as opposed to reading it in a book and then trying to apply it to a problem. Absolutely. That's really fascinating. I too did uh, computer science, but I didn't make it through because math but yeah, like I, a lot of the things I learned there, I haven't really used in my Ruby experience. Other than I learned a lot of really good, like basic OOP principles there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. But um, like it was definitely more computer science versus, um, I don't know what there. It's kind of a subtle difference, but a lot of the computer science stuff is more theory of how. We spent a lot of time doing detailed stuff on, uh, we had a whole assembly class, which was fun, but it wasn't practical, obviously. And we learned about, you know, uh, memory paging and how operating systems work and uh, multi-process stuff and all that, which actually that stuff ends up being pretty useful to know um, when you're, you know, configuring Puma to take full advantage of your CPU. You want to, be able to understand how many worker processes it should have and how many threads and all of that to fully maximize your CPU. But a lot of the other stuff is kind of like not as necessary because we don't in, in Ruby, we get to live and especially in rails, we get to live at such a high level that you don't really have to do a whole lot of algorithm stuff unless the app that you're building needs that for whatever business calculations you have to do. Yeah, and that's not a knock on like computer science. Like you're you're right that there are some things that get used. And if I were doing stuff other than the web development that I'm doing, I'd probably use it. But from my current context, you know, most of the things I use are things I taught myself. Shout out internet for all the free sources. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was that was what I did too. It was a lot of just Googling things, lots of I mean, this was before Stack Overflow. I spent a lot of time on forums 
back in the day, just learning about Linux and programming and Python and whatever. And eventually getting into Ruby was a lot of the same stuff. Ruby was amazing to move into because Python didn't have near the Ruby is probably the language I've seen that has the most cohesive community and like supportive community. Maybe Laravel is Laravel is pretty phenomenal for their community. It's really tight knit. And I love that. Um, But Rails and Ruby seem to be, you know, equally awesome and better than Python or anything else I had used. And I think it was kind of the core focus of the Ruby community being focused pretty heavily around, you know, web stuff that made it such a great place to go find things like wise um, stuff back in the day and rails casts and everything. It's, it's awesome. Yeah. I a hundred percent agree with you on the community. It's a big reason I came into Ruby. So now what I'm trying to do, like now what I'm trying to do in my life is or my programming is to start trying to, code out the problem without it just like in my head being the final thing. And I think that's the problem why I like want to reach for design patterns because so many times, like I just want my, I picture my code as a thing that's going to live forever when it's not. And I, I don't know its final form. So mm-hmm. a lot of times now I benefit from like writing out code, understanding that this might not be its final form. Yeah. Yeah. I try and write all my code just imagining what it will eventually need. And then that way, a lot of times I can come in and add a new feature in 15 minutes or something. Whereas if I wasn't thinking about that, I might have to rewrite half of it or more. And uh, that's kind of become like a, a thing that I generally focus on as much as possible now, just to make sure that every piece of code I'm thinking about, well, this is what I need today, but what am I going to need a month from now, six months from now or whatever? And how can I make that uh, current design easy to manipulate into whatever it needs to be eventually? Or, you know, if there are unexpected things, how can I make this simple so that it can be modified uh, in the future? Yes. Um, I have trouble doing that. Like I, I, in my head picture how I think it'll be, but I've oftentimes been wrong. So it's hard for me to do that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it just takes practice and in building lots of lots and lots and lots of different things. I really liked um, my first actual rails job. Full-time job was at a consulting agency and we did a lot of stuff for design agencies that did a lot of work for companies and uh, so we, we, you know, constantly were being thrown random challenges. Like I built a Facebook game one year. I, well, this was all in one year, um, Facebook game, like for one month. And then we got, like, I worked on the Hardee's and Carl's Jr. mobile app because they had a rails backend and they were like checking the GPS location to see if you were in the store. And, uh, you know, like, and then you're given this project and you're like, well, I don't, I don't know any of the uh, Android or iOS stuff to go fix this. And they're like, oh, don't worry. Like, take your time. And so I had to go teach myself that in a month to figure out, you know, how to correct whatever was going on there. And it took me 
you know, couple weeks to track down what even was wrong in the first place because the Rails backend was really easy. But mm, diving into native uh, mobile code back then was um, not not super easy. So I really like the sort of challenges that you get consulting where you just are thrown vastly different programs and then these weird challenges and then you have to learn by reading other people's code um, and then going and modifying that in some sustainable way. That was a great way to kind of dive into the deep end and learn a lot of stuff. I had fun with that. I've never gotten to, I've actually never worked for a consultancy that does rails development. It's one thing like that was always on my list of things to do, but I just kept falling into jobs that weren't that. Yeah. Well, the thing I want to clarify is I don't think design patterns and so-called best practices are bad to have. I like, I keep looking up at my bookshelf while we're talking about this, like looking at all my books that are like mostly about design patterns. Right. Um, I think the, thing that I'm learning right now is knowing the design patterns and then not putting them in place immediately helps me learn the warning signs of like, this could get out of hand to become hard to change, or this is already getting out of hand. And that's when those design practices are really good to start trying to put in. Yeah. Or like, you know, just simple things like, okay, you hear all the time about the N plus one problem and it's like, well, yeah, generally it's a problem, but um, if you're doing like Russian doll caching, you don't need to load every single record out of the database if you're only going to render one of them. Right. So N plus one is actually a great thing to have if you're going to do Russian doll caching and you don't want to just blanket this information that, um, you know, N plus one is always bad. And the same thing goes for all of these best practices. They always have trade-offs. And the problem that I see with that is that most people don't take the time to learn what the trade-offs are or why. And they're just like, oh, I have to do this every time because, uh, you know, that's what everybody says to do. It's like, no, you should stop and understand this first. And then you should figure out when it makes sense and when it doesn't. And when you understand both of those very well, then you're in a good place. But, you know, if you haven't taken the time to like look at these design patterns and then figure out when they're bad or what happens when you try and use a design pattern that doesn't quite fit, um, that's what happens pretty often. So, you know, you need to spend a lot of time on that as well, not just learning the design pattern. It's like, what happens when things don't quite fit and you try and shoehorn things. What do you do then? Cause that's when that's how most problems end up is like, they're close. They're not perfect. They're not these perfect examples that you see um, on the blog posts or screencasts or whatever, you know? So that's, that's the real learning. And that's, I think where the real mastery comes from once you understand those and you can take advantage of them and you can figure out how to work with them when your problem doesn't quite fit. Yeah, the other problem that kind of goes along with that is that you often have like time constraints on what you're working on. You have deadlines. And so like trying to fit in the right pattern like can be hard sometimes given those constraints. Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, you may not have the time to figure out what uh, pattern 
actually needs to be implemented. You know, that happens very commonly and you just have to address that as you go. You're like, okay, well we'll build something simple and then hopefully evolve it into something more robust or reliable, but you just may not have the time. I gave a talk about something along these lines at a conference here in Memphis. It was a solidist conference. And I kind of, I actually in the talk fought for spending more time, like thinking about the design of your application, not even necessarily design patterns, just like structure and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, But like the premise of the talk was slow down, be mindful and try to actually solve the problem. And I think that as you like learn design patterns or learn more about code and the more you understand a problem, like the easier this gets and the more you'll be able to like write air quotes, good code. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, as a beginner developer, you're just trying to attack the very front of the problem and just kind of brute force your way through it. Cause you don't know, you can't think that far ahead. It's like playing chess. You know, the better you get, the more moves you can think ahead. And so that's going to be the exact same thing when you're writing code. If you can think 20 steps ahead, your code's going to be much more useful. And I would consider better because you probably thought about a lot of those things that um, are going to be those pitfalls. You've thought about them ahead of time. So you can go implement it almost correctly at the very beginning. Whereas if you, if you just attack it head on, you're probably going to have to backpedal and undo things and, you know, go back and change your, you'll go write your models and then realize, Oh crap, I guess we're going to have to have this join table here instead. Or, you know, we need to change the way that this is structured and you'll have to backpedal quite a bit oftentimes. And that's kind of the thing that you learn over time is how to think that far ahead predict the problems and then just have them in your mind as you're coding the whole time. So we've talked a lot about kind of when we feel to use and not use design patterns or follow best practices, but I'd also would like to talk about like, what are things you like? What are good resources if you do want to explore those things? And so I will ask you first before I give mine. What are, mm. what are good resources for learning design patterns or learning how to write better code? Go Rails. <laughs> yeah, well, aside from Go Rails, I do really, really love making screencasts on that stuff. Um, but the the place that I learned all this wasn't from screencasts. Um, it was from reading like the Rails source code or like the device source code or whatever popular, well-maintained gem um, or just, you know, I watch, uh, there's a guy on Twitch that I watch, John Blow, and he's made a couple video games. What a and cool he's, name. Yeah. He, so he's made Braid and a game called The Witness. And Braid and is kind is of like. John Sorry. <laughs> um, so this guy's made a couple like mind bending games so far. And right now he, st- he streams on Twitch and he's building a new game. And it's in his own programming language this time. And it's like, a, it's kind of like a better version of C for making video games. And I have no intentions of making my own video games. I have no intentions of using his language or C or anything, but 
Um, watching him encode and like solve problems is super interesting. And he's talked about he's he's gone on a few rants that you can catch once in a while where he like hates on scripting languages and other things. And uh, better back down. Really, you better back they're down. Really, they're really good. Like he was completely right about all of it. And it was like you know the a lot of the complaints about scripting languages is like well they force you or, or they allow you to not think in a lot of cases. And it's definitely true. Like you don't have to worry about memory usage until, you know, your rails app boots up and it takes 20 minutes and it uses four gigs of Ram per process or whatever. And you're like, well, maybe we have a memory issue. Um, and building video games is like, that's always in your, in your mind. Cause in order to get like approved for the Xbox, you have to let your game run on the Xbox for 24 hours without crashing. And uh, like one of his games actually records time so that you can rewind time and stuff. And so that one was definitely a very tricky one for him to solve how to actually allow that to run for 24 hours. Cause in theory, the code should be written so he could rewind uh, for 24 hours or whatever. So I found watching other people code to be really like the most useful thing to learn how to code better and going and reading those things like rails source code is just super fun or just keeping track of like the issues. If you watch people make PRs and then look at the comments that people make on those, that's really interesting too. Cause they're like, well, we'll accept this, but you should reorganize this or whatever. And you're like, oh, interesting. That's the advice they're giving them to actually write this code in a Rails style, which is fun. What about you? I'm sorry. I have lots of resources because <laughs> as much as I think I don't need to like push design patterns right away, I really like them. Um, the first recommendation, practical object oriented design in Ruby, Sandy Metz. Um, that book has changed a lot of the way I write like object oriented code. And it's not even necessarily like following design patterns all the time. Maybe it is, but it's more just thinking about what an object should do, how big it should be responsibilities, which kind of goes back to the understanding the problem, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's actually a second edition of that book out now. I think, Uh, I don't know. It's different from the first, but. You just reminded me of uh, a great teeny tiny gem that I believe I covered on uh, Go Rails that Basecamp wrote called Name of Person. Yeah. And and we were just talking about this in Slack on Go Rails. Um, and this, so, you know, the, I, I saw this come out and I was like, I'll make a screencast on it. So I started poking around the source, source code and I realized like this is awesomely well organized. So the, the gem has, it basically just allows you to have a virtual attribute for full name, and then it will go split that and assign the first name and the last name. Really trivial. You'd imagine that it's like, you know, two lines of code almost um, on your model that it would just be added in a concern. But uh, what's cool about it is they actually have a class that does the name parsing and formatting and stuff. And then they have another uh, class that, or a module that's a concern that will include um, that 
and the attributes onto your model. And then they have another one that is the has name of person or whatever that you actually put into your model. So they broke it up into these very uh, explicit classes. One just simply is for active record to include it into your model. The other is the module that does the assignments. And then the other is the class that actually manipulates the names. And I was like, this is really cool. Like it's every single class here has one responsibility and you can see that very clearly. And you could easily have like what I would have done originally would just be if I was building that, I just make the concern and have you include it and be done. But by splitting that up, you can actually make it much more usable and use it in different ways. And and it will work as well if you didn't use, you know, active record, which is cool. So it's just, it was a great example of something that you can go read and see the very clear definitions of the responsibilities for each of those things and how they laid that out. And I was like, oh, I get some ideas of how I could do that on my own code. And I really enjoy doing that. That's really cool. Yeah, I saw the gym come out. I didn't look at it. But that's like a good example. That's a really good example of that. Um, I another talk, another like resource for me is pretty much anything Rich Hickey has ever said. Uh, Rich Hickey is the creator of Closure, and while I've like learned a little bit of Closure and like I'm really fascinated in language, it's not really like my cup of tea. But the way his mind works, he gave a talk at RailsConf 2012. Uh, I think it's called Simplicity Matters. It's something along the lines. I'll link it in the notes. But it's like a 30-minute talk about how we make things so complex when they don't need to be. Um, and it's so good. And then anything he's ever said online is so good. Um, <laughs> yeah, I remember watching that talk. I really liked it. Um, or maybe... <laughs> I can't remember if I saw him give a similar talk at uh, uh, St. Louis has a, a strange loop conference, which I know he's spoken at pretty sure. Um, but yeah, his, his talk on that is very, very good. Highly recommend that. Yeah. Sorry. My dog's barking. Um, Rich Hickey all the way. Uh, the other I have more resources. Another one is so Richie, he talks about how like we should understand the problem more and like actually that problem solving is like a thing you should practice uh, essentially like it's something you can get better at. And mm-hmm. so I bought this mm-hmm. book and it's like maybe a little out of my league, but it's how to solve it. It's called a new aspect of mathematical method. And mm. I've been trying to work through that because I just want to be like a better problem solver because I think that will, that will help me be a better programmer. Yeah. I guess that was my point earlier with consulting was just, you know, I gotta, I gotta apply my skills to these unexpected problems. And previously, you know, when I was learning to code, I would build an IRC client. I'd build a URL shortener, a paste bin, just like any tool that I would use on a regular basis, I would go try and recreate it myself. And that was just practice for me to figure out, well, how would I solve this problem if that's something I had to do? And uh, that really, really, really helps. You can get a huge amount better if you just give yourself challenges and then go try and solve problems that you have no idea how to solve. 
you will learn so much. There's a person who I worked with who was just amazing at thinking about like solutions to problems. Um, it was at my last job and he, uh, he was a CTO there and like, you would come to him with like, Hey, here's how I solve this problem. And he's like, okay, that works. And then he would tell you like better, like different ways to do it. And they were always so much better than the way I came up with. Like I want, that's who I want to be. Like, I want to know how to solve problems like that. That's awesome. Yeah. There's, those are the people you should seek out. It's really, really fascinating to, you know, see how if someone can give you uh, ideas for solutions that you didn't think of, pay strong attention to those people because they are the ones that you can learn a lot from. The last resource I have um, is one that kind of just, it, it's come to me in the last few weeks. I put out a tweet a few weeks ago about every time I write tests, I feel like it's a chore. And so I was asking people, how do you like, do you have tips for making this not feel like, Oh, I have to write tests. And a lot of people recommended just like sticking with TDD, which I'm really bad about sticking with it. And I've been trying it more. And the one thing that it does is it makes testing less of a chore because you can see early on, like, Oh, this is really hard to test. Like, these things are really interlocked and they probably shouldn't be. They should probably like split apart. And that I think is another way to like help kind of push you to write better code. Um, yeah. And the, the philosophy of TDD is to, you know, write the code that you want to work with and you are going to want to work with or have your, as you're writing your test in TDD, you're kind of like, okay, ideally it looks like this. And then if you're like, well, this is hard to test, then it starts to point out like maybe you don't have the right interface or whatever that you're trying to build. Yep. And, um, and, and that's what I really like about TDD. Um, it, it emphasizes that the problem is of course, and this is something DHH has talked about too. If you don't know what your interface should look like, you should take some time and go figure that out. And it's okay to do that as a spike as people call it, where you don't do any testing and you just experiment. Like, what if it looked like this? What if it looked like that? What if it looked like this? I don't know. And then you pick one of those and then you can do TDD on that. Um, But you should, if you're totally clueless of how you want to solve the problem, go fiddle around, create a brand new Rails app and try it six different ways and then figure out one that you're like, okay, this seems like a promising direction. Let's start with that one and and actually TDD that out. I think that helps a lot because um, there are a lot of people that try and do TDD and have no idea what their interface should look like. And that can lead you down some pretty nasty roads where you design your code for easy testing, but then it ends up being really nasty to actually use in a Rails app. Yeah, that's a really good uh, counterpoint to that. So I guess it's like, uh, it's really a balance. Um, yeah, test- it's always a balance, yeah. always. Yeah, it's a, it's the same thing as the best practices. Like, there's always cons and there's always pros. You just have to go take the time and figure out what both of them are. But if there's anybody telling you that there's only pros or there's only cons, they're probably wrong. There's probably some, you know, the other side to that. So you just got to take the time and 
and figure it out. My last resource, because I told you I had many of them, is similar to yours. Like you talk about reading the Rails source code. For me, it's actually reading the Hanami and like dry RP source code. Because even though I don't use that stuff a lot, I think all like the brains behind it are like really smart and like really experienced programmers. Um, so I really enjoy reading those because like it gives me kind of a way to think outside the Rails way. Um, even though I've talked many times about how like I appreciate the Rails way. Um, but yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. There's so much good code out there and you should just read that. And and even if it's not good code, it's fun to read because you're like, ah, they could have done this way better if they just did this or that. And then you might think that, and then you can actually go fork it and try it if it's a language, you know, and then you can actually find out, oh, I overlooked this thing. I thought that my solution was better, but actually it turns out their code does more than mine would. Mm. And you can learn a lot of fun stuff doing that. So I, I would like that too. like grab a gem and just try and refactor it and see if you can do better. And uh, a lot of times you might, but a lot of times you might not. And you might end up being like, well, my code is simpler, but it also doesn't have as many features as theirs does. Or we lose this feature, which is like the whole reason it ends up appearing to be more complicated or something. They, um, one fun thing that I saw was, you know, the pagey pagination gem that came out recently that was like significantly faster than Kaminari and stuff. Yep. Uh, if, you le- if you read the source code to it, it's like clearly been heavily optimized. And so it's not very readable. Mm in the same way because it's like concatenating strings in line in Ruby and these helper methods and they get speed from that, but not necessarily is it easy to go and change in the same ways uh, because they've optimized it for the speed. And and for a pagination gem, you're probably not going to change that very often or whatever. So like it probably is one that is safe to just heavily optimize for speed and that's it because you probably don't need to tweak that a whole lot. If you do, well, you can use, you can probably do it in Pagey, but you could also just use any of the other ones that might be giving you a bit of a cleaner interface to work with or whatever. So that's a perfect example of, it just goes back to balance. They are balancing speed versus readability. Yeah. And, and actually that's a great point of like, um, you know, it's funny when people are like beginners, they can off always, you, you often see people being like, oh, this is terrible code. It's so bad, blah, blah, blah. And you're like, well, actually, I think you just don't, simply don't understand the trade-offs that they were optimizing for here. And uh, a lot of times if you feel like code is bad, when you pick up, you know, a 10-year-old project at work that you're like, oh God, this is so terrible. Usually you have no idea what their constraints were or what they were optimizing for. And it's actually a lot better code than it seems. It's just old. And so you don't understand it and you'll begin to appreciate it as you dive into it. But your initial reaction is like, oh God, this is terrible. This old Rails app, oh, it's awful. (laughs) That's actually, uh, if you don't have anything else, that's actually what I want to end with is um that to a t- everything is awful yeah everything is awful uh, <laughs> no that that like to a t is kind of what i was trying to say like it's hard to measure good code and bad code like 
it's hard to define it. Um, I, you know, like I said, there's, I have what I think of good code and bad code, but that, that's always like kind of bit me. You know, like a good example is when I came in uh, to my current job, like my first project, I was like, Oh, I'm going to do this big refactor. And like, it ended up causing headaches for everyone. Um, <laughs> yeah. Because I was like, not necessarily this is bad code, but I was like, Oh, it could like, it could be better. Right. And then like a week later, uh, CTO was like, I understand why you're doing this, but I don't think you have all the context of why we did it this way. And he was absolutely right. And like my final project, like my final pull request looked almost exactly like the original code. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so like, that's where like, that's, that's where I'm like, I don't know. Uh, what I'm trying to say is that that's why I think you're right. Like context is important. And yeah, what, I think so. Why I think something is bad code doesn't necessarily mean it's bad code. So, right. Yeah. Cause you, you just may not understand the full picture. And that's also something that, um, you know, I, I, I ideally, you know, your code can contain some of that context in it so that when someone reads this in the future, and this is maybe where you write comments or whatever that describe what you were optimizing for. But a lot of times, like you'll even pick up a project that doesn't have any of that context in the code and it becomes very hard to change, which is whenever, whenever someone picks up an old project and it maybe didn't have any tests and you're trying to add tests. Well, you can try and refactor things, but if you don't know the context, you're going to break all these other features and then you're, you're going to start writing your test suite and realize like, oh, we should not make any changes to the code. We should build a test suite first mm, yes. and then refactor it. Uh, because if we try and do it, any of the refactoring now before we understand exactly what it does, we walk ourselves into a corner and we've just lost a bunch of features. And so that's like I, one thing that I would like to get better at is like, how do we include and incorporate more of that context into the code? Because mm. this is one of those things in Hatchbox like, Oh my God, there's so many different ways that things can go. And I think I mentioned this before, like your Nginx config can have like, you know, six or 12 different uh, settings or, or sort of like standardized versions for if you're using SSL or not, or custom SSL, let's encrypt, um, if you're using Puma or Passenger or whatever. And so there's all these variations on things. And uh, you need to be able to organize that in your code somehow. And that becomes very hard, especially when those kind of potential um, situations go grow exponentially. Then you're like, well, this is getting very complicated very fast. And how do we write our codes so that if anybody picks this up in the future or I put it down for six months, and then need to adjust it in the future. How do I remember all of those edge cases? And that is uh, not an easy problem to solve. You said something that like really stuck with me just now, and it <clears throat> that when writing code, like you need to give more context, right? How how can you give the most context? And that's because like a lot of times, code I've written was written by someone else, or code I'm writing will be modified by someone else. And, like, mm -hmm. and it could be yourself six months from now that's totally forgot why you wrote that code. 
<laughs> yeah. And I would, uh, and if anything, I want to leave the code like in the best shape for the next person. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you want it for them to be able to glance at it and have a complete understanding of it as soon as possible. Yeah. And that's very hard. Even if that person is six months later, me. Yeah. Especially then sometimes. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Ooh, man. All right. Have you vented all your, you know, design patterns, best practices and other, uh, other emotions? Uh, yeah, I am. I think I've said what I feel like I should say. <laughs> I don't, I don't really consider myself like very smart in all this or like very well-versed. Um, really all I'm doing is just sharing my experiences so far. Cause Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if you would, if you would ask me last year, I'd have been like, this is good code. This is bad code and argue it. And like, this is a design pattern you should use. I'm um, not that I know them all, but I, I thought I did, you know, or I thought I was mm-hmm. smarter, but now I just feel dumber and I'm okay with that. Well, I think, uh, you know, becoming a master at something is like, at some point you become, so good that you can question all of the basics that you took for granted. And that's when you know that you're, you're like actually deeply understanding what you're looking at. And a lot of times when you think that things are black and white, you probably don't understand them as well as you could. If they seem too clear cut, then it's like, well, there's always nuances. So it's kind of interesting how that works out. I'm exhausted, Chris. Um, <laughs> well, good news. It's Friday evening or afternoon. Yeah, it's almost time. I got to get some more work done for I call it a day. But um, we were talking about next week. Uh, so either next week or the week after we're talking about doing Ruby trivia. So, That'll be fun. We'll just ask each other questions or maybe we'll bring a guest on and just quiz them on the rubies. Yeah. We'll just have our first guest, our first guest being interrogated and waterboarded. Maybe our second guest. Oh yeah. Second guest. Uh, Man. What episode are we on now? 17. Dang. That's awesome, man. This was our best month in terms of downloads. So thank you everyone who listened. That's good. No regressions. We don't allow regressions. No, we'll probably regress next month. It's holiday month. That's true. Uh, or maybe people will have more time to listen to us. The, I I don't I don't imagine anyone gets to this point. <laughs> I feel like at this point we're just talking to each do, other. If you do, tweet at us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I'd also there's a couple of guests we've been talking about bringing on. So if you have, if you have made it this far and you're tweeting at us, also tell us like who you want us to talk to. Who are you interested in us brain picking? Yeah. Cool, man. Well, have a good weekend. Have a good weekend. All you friends. Yeah. Hopefully you guys are recovering from your black Friday, uh, shopping injuries, getting those cheap TVs. <laughs> You know who we could have on the podcast? John Cena. And his name is John Cena!
What if we did? <laughs> like, like, just imagine. <laughs> just imagine that somehow yeah. in some alternate universe we pulled that off. <laughs> we had John Cena on our Ruby podcast. Yeah, it turns out he knows Rails <laughs> or something. <laughs> All right. Well, have a good weekend. Talk to you later. See ya.